Today's reading is from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, welcome to church. It's good to see you all. It's a privilege to be back with you again today. Um, it's been a while. I'm, I'm having a hard time getting into these new rhythms. It's not that I don't like them. It's just that I don't know them very well. So welcome to 2018, huh? Um, today we're going to start a new series. Uh, this is the first installment of a series that I'm going to be doing throughout this year. Um, I'm going to be preaching on the fourth Sunday of each month, so there's going to be 12 parts. And uh, we titled this series uh, a very interesting title. It's, this is a real word. Um, everybody that I had reviewed the background said, is that a really a word? Um, it, you pronounce it perspicacity, which uh, there's, there's going to be a definition on the screen every week. Um, the one I want to show you this morning is a little bit more technical than this one. It, it tends to push you in a little bit deeper. It's the capacity to assess situations or circumstances shrewdly and to draw sound conclusions. Now, I have to tell you that as, as Christians, I think we know how rapidly shifting our culture is. Um, today, we're going to be talking about mental health, but in general, our culture seems to be moving almost like a pinball. And it seems just as soon as we seem to kind of have a, an idea or, or a bearing of where things are going, they ricochet off and they go in a completely different direction. And so this series is really intended to be like one-off sermons. They're going to take you in quickly into something that you're dealing with pretty much all the time and try to make it somewhat explainable to you to give you enough information, some of the research that you might be able uh, to rabbit trail a bit. The sermon notes have a lot of footnotes in them um, so that you can kind of figure this out. And I, I think you're going to find this really interesting. It, I, I believe the series itself is going to function a lot like Malcolm Gladwell's tagline on his podcast, Revisionist History. Uh, amazing podcast, by the way. But his tagline goes like this. He said, we will go back and reinterpret something from the past, an event, a person, an idea, something overlooked, something misunderstood. And there's a lot of that in our lives. Stuff we just tend to assume we know that we don't really know, 
don't really know. We either misunderstand it or we've just overlooked the situation. It's off our radar, so to speak. In, in another way, the series objective, I think it was captured just this past week by a, a, a tweet that, there's a lot of Tim Keller accounts, but there's a real one. That one is amazing. And he tweeted this this week. He said, our problem is not so much the unanswered questions, but the unquestioned answers out there. That really pushes in. And I, I know that I've found it in my own life, hopefully you have, where there's been things that just, when you become aware of them, it's like you trip over a piece of furniture that's in the wrong place. And while you're stumbling around wondering if your toe's broken, you're thinking, who put that there? And life has a lot of that in it. Sometimes it happens when you get married. Sometimes it happens when you start a business, or it always happens when you have children. You just don't get it. It's brand new. No one has raised that particular child before. And welcome to parenthood. So um, this is going to be an interesting series for sure. I'm really excited about it. I think the format is going to be really intriguing. I think it's going to give you an opportunity to just kind of take a step back and to look at some stuff that you probably think you know better than you actually do. So as I said already, the, this particular sermon is on mental health. Um, I can tell you that over the last couple of years, there's a lot of different events that are going on in our society that have kind of brought mental health into the spotlight, where it really wasn't that way in the United States for an extended period of time. Uh, but there, there's a good chance that there's a lot of you in this room right now, and certainly many of you, many of you watching online, that's probably going to sound funny after I make this statement. Um, if you're watching online, that doesn't mean you're mentally ill. <laughs> okay, it just, uh, there, there's a lot more people watching online, so the percentage is greater. Um, but anyway, there, there's probably quite a bit, few of you that you've already been through a season in your life where you wondered if you were losing it. You wondered, given certain definitions, I, this might sound kind of morbid, but after I got out of seminary, I used to always track a lot of the releases from the Mayo Clinic, and I had every mental illness that you can possibly have. I read the, I read the symptoms, and I had every one of them. And there was often times that I thought I should be checked into a mental institution, but I can tell you that this is going to be a really challenging sermon for some of you. I, now, those of you that have experienced in the past, this is, it's going to kind of land differently for you than it's going to land perhaps for someone that is sitting here this morning wondering if you're presently in it. What is your real mental health? You see, that's a profound question. It's not only profound for us as individuals, it's profound, I think, in regard to our society in general as well. Now, recent information, is, the data that is most recently available as far as the government stuff, the government, if you, if you don't know it, is really slow. Um, the, the information they released in 2013 was startling because it represented several different shifts. Now, the Huffington Post in May of 2016, they kind of analyzed all that data, and this is what they published. They said, if, if you're still of the belief that mental health conditions are not 
as devastating as physical ones, a new report will open your eyes. The United States spent an estimated $201 billion on mental, uh, mental disorders like anxiety and depression in 2013. According to the new analysis published in the Journal of Health Affairs, that makes, the, that makes it the costliest medical condition in the country. And so kind of out of the blue, mental health issues eclipsed every other thing that we pay for in regard to mental or physical health. And what, what's really interesting is when you push a little further into the data, it shows that not only has our the money that we've thrown at this and tried to remedy with that, the resources, has eclipsed every other thing in our society. It also indicates that there's been a very significant shift in how we understand what mental health and mental illness actually is. Here's another report that said, before the, the 1960s, America spent the majority of its mental health budget providing treatment to people with serious mental illness. Since then, a shift took place, and some mental health professionals argue the seriously mental ill have been abandoned. Now, what's really interesting or intriguing about that particular piece of data is that the way that we used to spend our money was to support and to provide resources to these institutions that were providing care for people that were really seriously ill. And over, over the last 40, 50 years, there's been this huge shift in our society that we don't even perceive it that way. In fact, that report goes on to say that a lot of the people that would have been institutionalized 40 years ago, they're either in prison or on the street today. And that's why a lot of mental health professionals are saying, those people that we used to serve have been abandoned. And instead, we've developed these obsessions with anxiety and depression, for the most part. Now, I think that that should probably hook you by now. It should cause you at least to say, this could be worth 20 more minutes to kind of investigate. Now, going all the way back to what Daniel read in the beginning, the passage from Ephesians chapter 2 that you heard earlier, it provides, I think, two very interesting key factors in understanding mental health. Number one, what we need to overcome in our thinking. Those verses strategically describe what it is that we need to be aware of and what it is we need to move away from, okay? Now, the second piece is what we need to, to develop. So if, you're th if you think kind of strategically and concretely, that's the bad, what we need to move away from and overcome, and the good is what we need to be focused on and moving forward. So let's start with this first part, what we need to overcome. Um, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, they actually give a fairly dismal description of the mental health condition of every human being. Now, there's probably some of you in this room that have never suffered with depression. You've never suffered with anxiety. And, but the, the chances are the majority of you, of you have. Now, the way that Paul wrote these verses is really interesting because he he pretty much went out of his way to make sure that you didn't conclude that. That you didn't conclude the fact that you said, well, that's for other people. That's for the weak people. That's for the sick people. He wrote this in a way that you can't quite 
get that booger off your finger as easily as you might think. It's, this one sticks to everybody. Now, what's interesting is that when you start to break it down, and like in verse 1, Paul likens this condition to being dead. Now, this is like Prince's Bride. He's describing something that isn't totally dead. It's mostly dead, but it's not totally dead. Now, we know for sure that he's not picking, he's not talking about physical death because his explanation starts to press into how you live every day. And so this is a person that's dead, but alive at the same time. And so it, it, it's a very in, interesting characterization because it, in description because it, it's describing the way you actually live. In verse 2, when it says, in the way in which you once walked. That's kind of a biblical depiction of just how you wake up on Monday, how you go to sleep on Friday, how you go to work on Wednesday. It's just a path that you live on. And so he's really pressing into something that's kind of the baseline of every one of our frame of reference, every one of us. So his reference to trespasses and sins is really significant. Even if you're not a Christian, it's really significant because it tells you his frame of reference is coming from a person who, while in that mindset, either disregarded or acted almost defiantly in, in, in regard to the way that God said, here's the way human beings should live. That idea of trespass and sin is just talking about a person who just lives in contradiction in transgression, violation. You jumped the fence when it said no, no trespassing. And so that kind of characterizes and sets the general context. It's, it's really interesting, I think, that he uses the phrases following the course of the world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sense of disobedience. That indicates that these conditions are universal perspectives of all people and even the devil himself. And so he's saying, okay, before you try to take, your, take yourself out of this pool of people, this is how everybody is. It's like all of mankind. It's just exactly the way the devil is, which that's pretty dismal. Now, he pushes beyond that, and the universality of his description is also emphasized by the phrase, among whom we all once lived as it ensures that Christians don't wash themselves off. In other words, as a Christian sometimes, and this I think is one of our biggest faults, and I'm putting myself in that collective, collective um, we forget. We forget what it was like oftentimes to despair. But we've despaired. We oftentimes are kind of incredulous towards an addiction, that a person has. But we've been addicted. Maybe we haven't been addicted to crack cocaine, but we were addicted to some other something. We were addicted to the, the grandeur of a relationship that we conjured into our mind. We were addicted to the notion of success when we were at school that caused us to to just work around the clock because we really believed that if I get, if I can graduate with this degree with honors, I can punch my ticket. We were addicted. We have broken down relationships, even if ours are still intact, 
We've done everything that anyone has ever done. And Paul makes sure that whatever he throws in this pond splashes on everyone. And he intended Christians to not exonerate themselves from this. Now, the balance of verse 3 is actually the heart of his description here, his explanation of the mental disposition that he's discussing. It explains its primary motivation. And I think he's even getting into its strategic execution when you consider these two clauses. Um, The first one is, he uses the phrase, in the passions of our flesh, which describes the fact that you were, we were actually being motivated out of, uh, out of a sense of our carnal ambition. It had a conspicuous horizontal uh, orientation to it. And it was those passions that were really at work. It, it, it's like they had their hand on the back of our neck. Okay, and when he uses the second clause, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, he's talking about what we were executing, the narrative that we were putting into play into the world around us, into our relationships, into our businesses, into our jobs, into our our neighborhoods, into our children. And what we were executing is our own carnal ambition. And so he is really getting into the strategic function of a mind here. And again, We were all like this. And what's really interesting is when you look at those clauses in in verse 3 particularly, it it gives you almost an eerie sense of the very common mantras that we hear today. To follow your passion. Do what you love. Guess what? That's exactly what you were doing. That's exactly what we were doing. Now, the final clause of verse 3, it simply says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I heard an old preacher one time that said, basically, you were bullseyes for God's guns of judgment. Now, that's a little harsh today, I think, but back then it really got some traction. Um, But it's basically emphasizing again, I'm I'm old, so I have some old friends, um, but, but he's basically, he's reemphasizing the fact that when you were doing this, you were an object of wrath, just like everybody else, like the rest of mankind. Now, it's, it, it's, it, now, I want to take a step back from those first three verses for just a moment, because I think it's worth noting that, that this isn't the only place that Paul described it this way. So it's not like he's in jail and he's in kind of a funk and he feels bad, so he's going to make you all feel bad along with him. He, he did this, it seems like he felt bad his whole life because he, what he wrote to Colossae in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, he described our mental condition this way. He says, and you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now that one's interesting because it's getting at that the term for hostile is the term ekthros in the original language and it, it just meant to hate. He said there was a point in which you were so disjointed from God that you just hated everything. And I think that includes yourself. Okay? He wrote to one of the pastoral letters he wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, he described it this way. He said, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Here it is, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, 
and hated by others and hating one another. So Paul basically kicked this drum over and over. Now, if you take it another step back and you look at some of the other biblical writers, two really prominent ones in the Old Testament, um, they really underscore what God intended. Now, both David and Solomon that I'm going to show you examples of, they wrote about a thousand years before Paul did. So it was a long time. And this is what David wrote in Psalm 58 and verse 3. He said, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And so David believed the same thing. Solomon is probably the most explicit in his description. In Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 3, he says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. That's pretty dismal. Now, the long and the short of everything that we've looked at in these descriptions is that we all suffer from a form of mental illness, whether we realize it or not. You can even call it a form of insanity. It is both universal and next to impossible to overcome in our human experience, since it's grounded in our own obsession with self-gratification. In that sense, it closely resembles one of today's most common diagnoses, narcissism. The pursuit of gratification from vanity or egotistic admiration of one's own attributes. I'm sure there's some of you in this room that have either been diagnosed with narcissism, um, been accused of it without being diagnosed, or you still need to be convinced of it. That's pretty much just all of us. Um, that's kind of interesting. Now, the one thing that I feel like I have to do at this point is that there's some of you that are not Christians, probably in this room or watching online, that you're probably saying, that's just kind of religious fodder. That's just sentimental drivel that comes from Christian pulpits. It's not. There's a convergence of awareness coming in to focus. And both Christians and non-Christians are starting to say, this really is true. Now, I, I really, I, let me explain this, and they taught me in seminary, that was a long time ago, but they taught me in seminary, they said, never apologize before you say something. I'm going to apologize, because I did everything I could not to use David Foster Wallace, but I couldn't, I, I couldn't help myself. And David Foster Wallace was a man committed to an atheistic worldview. But he, he delivered in 2005 what is now considered by many, many people to be one of the finest commencement speeches ever given. Steve Jobs is pretty up, high up there, too. But the interesting thing about David Foster Wallace is that he delivered that speech three years before he took his own life. Now, I've done a lot of research, and I tend to think, and these are my own conclusions, I don't, I'm not going to pin this on anyone else, I tend to think he saw something about the human condition, but his atheism put him in a, in a cul-de-sac. There was no, it, it, it was so disturbing to him that he had no way to handle it, and he takes his life within three years. But listen to how lucid his description is. He said, a huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. 
Here's one example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It is our default setting hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. The world as you experienced it is right there in front of you, or behind you, or to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor or whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real, you get the idea. And This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free from free of my natural hardwired wired default setting, which is to be deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through the lens of self. I wish each of us could truly grasp the profundity and the depth of what he's actually saying there. But is it a rarity, even in this room, to meet a person who doesn't define herself this way. A human being that does not explain things. Over the next week, make a note of it. Listen to people whenever they recount an experience to you. It sounds exactly like what he just said. They're always explaining the car that was driving next to them. They're always describing the person that was standing in line right in front of them or behind them. It's because we tend to see the world from our own imperial, selfish vantage point. And so this is really, really an interesting thing because there's reasons that, there's reasons that we don't, people don't get this. What I just explained to you is something that you would have to say, well, if, if, it, were, if it was that prevailing, obviously more people would get this. So why are there so few people that tend to talk this way? Why is there some people that perhaps in this room are squirming in their chair saying, I'm not like that. You've dealt with a lot of sick people over the years, but I'm not like that. How could it be that something this universal, this basic to all of us, basically escapes our awareness? Now, it should seem obvious that a problem of this magnitude is complex and has a myriad of causes and correlations to it that make it hard to perceive accurately. However, I want to tell you two things that I really do believe have gouged the eyes of most of our awareness. And there's only two that I want to spend a couple moments on. Number one is the medication narrative. This is a big deal. Perhaps the greatest reason why so few people really get this is that over the past half century, and particularly since 1987 and the introduction of Prozac and a myriad of other antidepressants, psychiatry has convinced almost everyone in the United States 
of the narrative that portrays issues like depression or anxiety as a disease of the brain instead of an illness of the mind. In other words, our problem is physiological and not in the way we think. Now, to be sure, don't mistake what I'm saying here, to be sure, there, there are mental health issues that are physiological and physiologically and even environmentally induced. That's true. But the vast majority of them are not. And research is starting to come out, and for some of you, it's going to be heart-wrenching to learn that for decades, you thought your world was changing because you swallowed a pill a couple times a day. And it's not. Now, there's some of you, and I know who you are, that you're really sick and you can't function without taking medication. But the majority, you were mistaken. The reality is that those actual physiological situations are relatively few. And as long as we have been convinced that our problem is with our brain and not with our thinking, there's no wonder that we've been willing to opt for the easier route of swallowing the pills instead of doing the hard work of changing our thinking. There was a recent research analysis done by Quartz that put it this way. This explanation, chemical imbalances in the brain, widely cited as empirical truth, is false. It was once a tentatively posed hypothesis in the sciences, but no evidence for it has been found. And so it has been discarded by physicians and researchers, yet the idea of chemical imbalances has remained stubbornly embedded in the public understanding of depression. One reason the theory of chemical imbalances won't die is that it fits in with psychiatry's attempt over the past half century to portray depression as a disease of the brain instead of an illness of the mind. This narrative, which depicts depression as a biological condition that afflicts the material substance of the body, much like cancer, divorces depression from the self. You know what that basically means? If you have a disease, you get out of jail free. But if you really are trapped in your own selfish thinking, there's no excuse for that. David Foster Wallace said, we don't even like to talk about it. It's so publicly repulsive. But if you've got a disease, who can blame you? And so the medication narrative has kept a lot of us from seeing the truth. The second reason I think that so few people get this is the misguided self-reliance stuff. We are all familiar with the mantras that we hear, pursue your passions, do what you love. In other words, trust yourself more. Now, for a person who's really self-aware or well-adjusted, that might be really helpful to say, you know what, you're quitting on yourself. And you're going to have to repent of quitting on yourself. If you believe in something, stick it through. Stick it out. But... It's horribly misleading to tell a person who is trapped in self-absorption 
and continually sees himself as a victim of his parents, of his job, of his education, of the political situation of our country. To just follow your passions, do what you love. That's, that can be horribly devastating and misleading. Doing more of the same and expecting a different out, outcome is rarely a reliable option for sustainable change. If you've just come to realize that what you formerly believed that would make you happy, truly happy, is actually aggravating your misery, encourage, encouraging you to trust your own self-direction probably isn't going to help. So what we most need to overcome in order to see the world clearly is ourselves, our fixation on self-gratification. As long as we remain in its grip, our lives will be continually filled with sadness and heartbreak. That is a crystal clear assertion from Christianity that's now also being discovered and told by non-Christians as well. So what do we need to develop? Now, these aren't proportional, so don't worry. I'm not going to continue to go very long. Um, what do you, where do we need to go? If that's what we need to change, what do we need to develop? I think we see that explanation in verses 4 to 9. In verses 4 to 9, Paul describes a radically different condition, a resurrection of sorts, one that actually transforms the deadness to liveness. According to the greatness of God's love, people are made alive, not by their own ability to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but by God's grace. So now, instead of people living mostly dead lives, they actually are able to live lives that are no longer plagued by their own self-absorption. That brings us to verse 10. Okay? Now, verse 10 explains that this new life is characterized by several realities that we are now realizing to be incredibly significant to our mental health. The entire mental health community in the United States and around the world is beginning to see how important these three things are that he wrote 2,000 years ago. Now, I think, I'm sure that they're all meaningful to each of you today. Now, the first of these meaningful things is being able to live in our own skin. Now, I venture to say that the majority of our country and many of you in this room are uncomfortable living in your own skin. And the litmus test for this is, is probably how many magazines you like to read. Because all of us tend to vicariously live our lives into different people. There's only, boy, it pains me to say this, there's only one Tom Brady, and I hope he's soon done. I hope he's done pretty soon. <laughs> but there's only one. There, there's only one of that model that has promised you so much meaning if you could look like her. There's only one. But there's something in what he says here that we were his workmanship. It, it, it actually was a phrase that was used of an artist expressing her thoughts on a canvas or a, a potter on a wheel. There's something about the expression of the work of art that tells you something about the artist. And Paul uses that phraseology. He said, we are his workmanship. And it's basically speaking to this deep sense of you being able to say, I'm okay with me. 
I'm okay. I, I can respect and adore the gifts and the talents and the person of other people without coveting it. Because I know it is necessary for me to be exactly who he made me to be. And there are very few of you that are that well-adjusted. It, 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 it probably took me 22 years of ministry to where I, I could actually be able to openly talk about losing an eye when I was 11. It's like, who was I kidding? But that's part of me. That's a part of me as much as any other aspect of my life. And being able to own ourselves is something that is absolutely necessary to good mental health. Because as long as you're coveting someone else, another sex, an, an, another uh, race, another set of riches, another diploma, another uh, award, as long as those things are all external to you, you'll never be happy. You can't be happy from, you can't be made happy from the outside. You just can't. And so this baseline in this, when he describes this, is that we are his workmanship. You're exactly who we made you to be. And all you have to do is look at some of the cross-section of, of Scripture, your gender, your height, the color of your eyes, the color of your skin, your intelligence, your lack of intelligence, your strength, your beauty, the, even the place that you would live in this world, God determined. And yet even as Christians, we are frustrated with God when he doesn't give us what we want. We don't trust him. But this is the key to being able to live in your own skin. The second thing that verse 10 actually explains to us is a fresh start that's free from shame and guilt. When he said being created in Christ Jesus refers to the means by which God finally breaks the cycle of our own self-absorption and obsession and the insane notions about what the world can do for us. It can't be broken on our own. But he breaks it. And he does it by putting us in Christ. What that means, when you look at the explanations of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus in the scripture, it is presented exclusively as a propitiation. That's just a technical term that means you're exonerated. Whatever debt you had has been paid. Imagine that. Those of you that are carrying tens of thousands of dollars in, in uh, credit card debt, consumer debt of some sorts, you go home and you get a letter that says somebody likes you. They completely paid your account. You actually have a positive balance. You're thinking, nobody likes me that much. But that's what this is saying. Because those of us that are aware know that when we come into that kind of forgiveness, there was something that we did before we had that that was horrible. We can finally begin to see what motivated us to treat people the way we did or to possess the things that we did. And the shame and the guilt is crushing. And when he says you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, your guilt is shame have been taken away. A fresh start. That's amazing. I can't tell you how many people I've seen over the years that have been able to believe 
the majority of Christianity, but not all of it. And the hardest part for them isn't that God parted the Red Sea. It isn't, it, it isn't that, that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes scooting out of the graves. And he said, okay, take the grave clothes off. They don't have a hard part with that. They have a hard part with this. Because the scars and the wounds that they carry, that they've inflicted on the people that are still in their lives, they have a hard time believing it's okay. So two things so far. Being able to live in our own skins, a fresh start that's free from shame and guilt, that brings us to the third one. Genuine significance and purpose. This is really important today. Okay? He explains that this new identity has always had a goal to it. It always had an ex executable strategy built into it. One that is completely unique to how we made you, who we are, and therefore different from anyone that has ever lived before. There's not another person out there that you can emulate and totally be you. When he uses this expression, it says you were created for good works. That means that it has kind of an extenuation into life. There's something, it, this isn't just people that are sitting around thinking about themselves. These are people that are actually doing things. And there's good activities, works, actions coming into the world, not in spite of you, because of you. They're yours. They don't belong to anyone else. And this is probably the most radically tr transforming thing that we can think of, is that he's actually saying, you're his workmanship, this work of art that's on this canvas that was created in Christ Jesus, so now your, your shame and your guilt are taken care of. There's this empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Why? To do good works that he prepared beforehand for you to do. They're yours and they don't belong to anyone else. That's radical mental health. That is radical self-awareness. I know who I am is exactly who I should be. I know that God has taken care of a shame and a guilt that I could never have taken care of, and I know that he has aligned me in this world, in this creation in a way that is who I am. So let's get on with it. Now, I suppose that, I suppose that if we were to summarize everything that I've said Today, everything that you've, I've asked you to consider, it sounds radical. That true mental health can only be realized through believing in the gospel and all that it tells us about God, ourselves, others, and the world around us. And then without it, our mental health will never be anchored in reality since it will always be shackled to the inescapable burden of our self-absorption that blinds us to who we are and our true purpose in life. That's radical. For some of you that are non-Christians, if I were in your chair, this would piss me off. Now, I know where those objections come from. When I, when I was writing this, I took a step back and I'm thinking, what would I be thinking if I was a professor at CU Medical Center sitting in this room right now? Or if I'm someone online and I'm thinking, the, the person who discovered penicillin, I don't think was a Christian, do you actually want to say that everyone that isn't a Christian is suffering from some form of insanity? I didn't say it. Paul said it. But that's what it says. <laughs> that's what it says. There's something here that is fundamentally broken 
if we're not believing the gospel? How could that be? And the only explanation I can give you is that I, I believe in God's common grace. He allows some people that don't understand a coherent worldview, but are so brilliant, they can tell us things about medicine. They can tell us things about space. But it's broken when it comes to a coherent worldview. Think about it. If you fundamentally start your approach to things saying there is no meaning because there's no God. I'm trying to find the true rhythm or the true order of, of this mathematical equation. But there can't be one because there is no God. There's no transcendent truth or meaning to anything. And so as brilliant as they can be in one space, there's still a haunting sense of insanity when it comes to all the spaces. I realize. You, you see, the, one of the objections, I think, comes from the simple fact that we've all known people that are kinder, smarter, and apparently better adjusted than many of us who claim to be Christians. But the assertions here are really clear. There's something about what Paul and the other writers of Scripture were saying that said, unless you become aware of this, it will always hold you in your grip, its grip. Unless you actually know what you need to overcome. Now, surprisingly, this, this gets really close to a statement that uh, C.S. Lewis said in Near Christianity. And let me see if I got, have this in my note. I passed it up earlier. Yeah, here it is. Um, he said, no man knows how bad he is till he tries really hard to be good. As long as you don't try to be good, your conclusion is that you're doing pretty well. But when you try really hard to be good, then you become aware of how bad you are pretty profound. I know this is radical, but I can tell you one thing that I've never met a single person who processed this, who did not have amazing awareness and mental health, even if they were dealing with a physio physiological component. There was just a sense in which they were okay with themselves, with other people, with even God. I hope that was helpful. Perspicacity. See you next month. Take a couple questions. Wow, what a blessing. <laughs> I actually, Nate, that was my fault. I put the bug in that. I'll fix it right after the service is over. I didn't want to have to deal with that feedback. So anyhow. Okay. Was that okay? We're going to do this. Every month. Every month. Okay, let me pray. Father, I would ask that these would be a few moments of clear, lucid contemplation. Simply because we don't have very much of it. I read a statistic this week that that most millennials spend four hours a day staring at their screens.
Not just their phones, all the screens. Four hours. And Father, the reality of it is, is that whether we're millennials or way past that, we have lost a very strategic capacity to self-examine. And what we've heard today is the fact that it's, it's always been the hardwired setting on our boards. We come into the world insane. And we live that way throughout our days and then we go to the grave. And I, I ask that you would do a miracle for just a couple of moments that there would be little pops of awareness in each of our minds that would allow us to see things that we need to see. Probably the things we don't want to see, but nonetheless, the things we need to see. And because of that, you would give us courage. You would give us integrity to do something about it. Rather than just going home and whitewashing over it once again. Help us. Help us to be people that are not trapped in a dungeon of self-absorption. There certainly are many people in this room that have a lot of reason to be grateful because they know exactly what Paul described. They know how they lived there and how long they lived there. They know what they did when they were there. And yet now they've been free. And as we would partake of communion, I, I would ask in a very special way you would attend it today. As people that are Christians come forward and they take a piece of bread that is shown to be a, a symbol of the broken body of Jesus and they dip it in a chalice of wine that is, again, just a symbol of his spilt blood. It could be a, not only a testimony to the rest of us that that's how his or her life is defined, but it could be a sacred moment a sacred moment in which each of us is able to say, here I stand by the grace of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.